And because of that, we do a type of teaching called expository teaching, where we open the Bible up, we walk through it sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, uh, and that has us on a journey through Colossians that we are calling Jesus over all. That he is our king, he is our Lord, as we talked about earlier reading the Apostles' Creed, and everything in this life, everything in the scripture points us to him. So join me in Colossians. Uh, If you didn't get one of these on your way in, this is a listening guide. It has the text, it has an outline of the sermon, it will help you follow along uh, as we go through our study this morning. So if you didn't get one, you can slip your hand up and someone from the back will give one to you. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. Verses 9 through 14 uh, is going to have us talking this morning about the subject of prayer, or as I like to call it, how to make a room full of Christians feel guilty and uncomfortable. Because in my experience, my personal experience, and with the Christians that I meet and that I talk to, I think there are very few areas in which we feel a tangible gap between where we are and where we know we ought to be as our prayer life. I've yet to meet a Christian who, when you ask, hey, how is your prayer life going? And they say, man, fantastic. I am killing it. I'm praying all the time, praying without ceasing, like Paul says. Most of the time, when I ask somebody, how's your prayer life? It's, you know, maybe it's good, maybe it's okay, but the the refrain is, it's it's not where it should be. Prayer is something that the Bible tells us to do constantly. It's something that we know we ought to do, we desire to do, but it feels like we keep coming up short. We don't pray as much as we should. We don't pray maybe in the way that we should. And so this morning, as we look at these verses in Colossians, if you were here last week, Tom led us through verses 3 through 8, where we examined Paul's thanksgiving, his thankfulness for the gospel. And we saw how that thankfulness creates an example for us to follow, for us to emulate in our own lives. Well, this week in verse 9, he transitions into thanking God for the Colossian church to praying for the Colossian church. And in his prayer, he gives us just as strong of an example as he did in his thanksgiving. And so as we look at this text this morning, I want you to start to think about uh, how Paul prays. How does he pray for these people who, remember, he has not met? This is a church that he's heard news of, that he's writing to, but he's never actually met these people. How does he pray for them? And most importantly, what does he pray for? And think about yourself over the past week. Uh, Maybe think about the last three people that you prayed for this week or in, in the past few weeks and ask, what prompted you to pray for them? What did you pray for them? And think about that as we look at the model that Paul gives us in praying for the Colossians. Um, I want to go ahead and give the disclaimer up front. I think this one's going to hurt a little bit because for me, as I went through this and I worked through the text this week, I had to go under the knife myself and be convicted over where my prayer life comes up short of the example that I see in Scripture. Uh, And so... Rest assured, any sting that you feel this morning from the text and from the sermon is one that I can very much sympathize with. Uh, And I pray that God will use this text this morning not to just make us feel like, man, my prayer life is terrible, I'm not doing good enough, but to energize us, to motivate us to pray in the way that we should. Because what we see here is not necessarily a guilt trip from Paul. It's not going to be a sermon of, you got to do better, you got to pray more because you should pray more and everybody knows you should pray more. It's, look at this marvelous example. 
Look at this marvelous picture of prayer and what it calls us to look to and what it calls us to remember and what it calls us to meditate on. I want that. That's what I want you to end this morning thinking. It's not, gosh, I got to do better, but God, I want to pray like that because it matters, because it's good, and because you empower me to do the very things that you call me to do. So Colossians 1, we're going to read together verses 9 through 14, and then we will jump right in and start talking about how to pray for others. Beginning in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, and bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not, make us by the power of your word this morning to the praise of your glorious grace. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. So we're going to start with the first two words. Fantastic place to start. Verse 9. And so, the first thing I want us to notice this morning as we think about how to pray for others is the fact that this is not disconnected from what has just come before. It's not disconnected from what Tom told us last week about Thanksgiving. He begins, and so, because of all of that, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. When we understand the things that that Tom talked about last week, when we understand our reasons for Thanksgiving in the gospel, it drives us to prayer. Prayer like this doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. But when we understand what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, it drives us to prayer. Uh, And if we are rejoicing in what God is doing in the lives of others, like Tom talked to us about last week, remember he was thanking God for what he saw happening in the lives of the Colossian people. If we're thanking God for what's happening in someone else's life, we're going to want it to continue. And the way that we can express that is through asking God that it continues, that they continue to grow. And then Paul says, and so from the day we heard, this was an immediate and direct response, right? Paul hasn't met these people, but from the minute that he heard about what the Spirit of God was doing among them, he began to pray. Uh, I think it's, it's one, of our, um, one of our great shames that prayer is often the last resort, right? When we run out of options, when we feel like we have nothing else to do, there's nothing left to do but pray. Not in Paul's world, not in Paul's mind, in, in his mind, From the day he heard about this, he prayed that these people would continue to grow, that they would continue to experience God's uh, God's power and his presence in the gospel message. And so he tells them that he prayed for them. And so from the day we've heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now, if this was me, I might have stopped right here. Like this is is as far as we get sometimes, I think. And hey, I've been praying for you. But Paul doesn't just say, I've been praying for you. He tells them, what he's been praying about, what he's been praying for them. And that example for us this morning is a powerful reminder of what it is that we should be truly valuing in this life, 
what it is that the gospel compels us to do. And the first thing that he tells them he prayed for was that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So how do we pray for others? The first way I want to look at this morning, we should pray that people will know God's will. So what does it mean to know God's will? That's the logical question we have to ask, right? If I'm going to pray for somebody to know God's will, what does it mean to know God's will? What am I praying for them? What do I want them to experience? Well, when we talk about God's will, we tend to, to use a lot of different, um, we tend to talk about it in a lot of different ways. Uh, and I think maybe the most common way that our culture today talks about wanting to know God's will, want to understand God's will, is we ask, what does God want me to do in this circumstance that I find myself facing? Like when we Discovering God's will kind of becomes about trying to read the tea leaves and figure out, should I take this job or should I take that job? Should I move to this city or should I move to that city? Should I marry this person or that person or no person? Like, What do you want me to, to do? And I have to figure out what God's will is so that I know how to live my life. Well, that's not really the way that the Bible talks about God's will. You see, the first way that, that it talks about God's will here is that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Knowing God's will involves spiritual wisdom and understanding. When the Bible talks about God's will and talks about us knowing what it is, it talks about it in two ways. The first is what we call God's decreed will. What will come to pass? Uh, so when we say that, it, you know, if it's God's will, then we're going to have a cookout after the service this morning. Uh, if you look at the book of James where he warns his readers against saying, you know, I'm going to go here and do this and do that. And they make very proud plans about how they're going to live their life. And he said, instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. And this is that idea of God's decreed will that all of us are not all powerful. We are under the guidance under the hand of God's sovereignty and what he decrees will come to pass will come to pass. But the funny thing with, with talking about that side of God's will is the Bible never tells us that we should try to figure that out, right? The, the Bible never says that we need to try to read the Bible codes and figure out all the numbers so that we know exactly when and everything, how it's all going to happen. You know, the world was supposed to end last Saturday, was it? The 23rd? That didn't happen. Again, surprise. The Bible never tells us to figure these things out, to try to understand what God is going to will to come to pass. So we have to land in the second way the Bible talks about his will, and that is his revealed will, how he calls us to live. And the Bible doesn't talk about this side of God's will in terms of figuring out a mystery, but it talks about it in terms of obedience to the commands that God has given. This is the kind of wisdom, this is the kind of understanding and knowledge of his will that Paul is praying for the Colossians. Think about uh, the way Paul put it in the book of Romans in chapter 12, verse 2. He said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he tells them, don't be conformed to this world. Don't fall in lockstep with the way everyone around you is living and doing things. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may know, you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. So what is the will of God for you? It's what is good and acceptable and perfect. God is, is 
is wanting us to know his will, to know how he wants us to live, and he gives us express commands. He doesn't make mysteries. He doesn't make complicated algorithms that we have to unravel and solve and calculate. He gives us simple commands. And so when Paul prays that the Colossians would have knowledge of God's will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, he's praying that they will know how to live. How do I know that this is the type of wisdom Paul's praying for? Because he says so. He prays for wisdom and understanding so that they can live righteous lives, right? Verse 10, filled with knowledge of his will, all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So this is where we have to wrap our minds around biblical wisdom not being what the wisdom of this world looks like. Biblical wisdom is not the mountaintop sage who dispenses pithy quotes and tells everybody things that you can put on a fortune cookie or crochet on your wall. Biblical wisdom is understanding who God is, understanding what he requires, and taking action based on that knowledge. So when Paul prays that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, he's praying that they would understand who God is so that they will live righteous lives. And we see this talk all the time in Scripture when it comes to talking about God's will. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Uh, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain for sexual immorality. Paul tells the Thessalonians, it is God's will for you that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you flee from lustful thoughts, that you flee from adultery, that you flee from pornography. All of these things, I can stand here and say on the basis of Scripture, it is God's will that you do this. God wants you to avoid these things. And then flip it on the positive side, in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is God's will in Christ Jesus for me? That I would rejoice always, that I would pray without ceasing, that I would give thanks in God's circumstances. This is what God wants me to do. So this is how we get from having wisdom to living righteously. When we understand what God requires, we understand how we should live in response to it. And that's what he's asking for the Colossians here. He wants them to be filled with God's will so that they know how to live, they know how to act. Just to illustrate further this connection between wisdom and righteous living, um, these two words, spiritual wisdom and understanding, these are the same things that Solomon asked for when he asked God for wisdom to rule and to govern his people. If you remember that story, God comes to Solomon. Solomon is David's son. He's taken over as king of the people of Israel. And God comes to him at night in a vision and says, Solomon, you ask me for anything that you want, anything at all, and I will give it to you. And Solomon says, I need wisdom and understanding to govern this people that you have laid before me. And God rewards him. He says, I'm going to give that to you, and I'm going to give all the things that you could have asked for but didn't, riches, wealth, honor, fame. I'm going to give those to you as well. Solomon understood that he needed wisdom. He needed understanding. Was he asking God to be a mere guru, someone who, who had lots of nice things to say? No. He was asking for wisdom because he needed to govern. He needed to lead, and he needed to understand what he should do. Pastor and author Dick Lucas put it this way. He said, face daily with difficult problems and even more difficult people. Sound like anybody's life? Can you relate to that? Solomon had to know how to relate the unchanging principles of God's will revealed in the law 
to the present and quickly changing questions of the day. Wisdom and understanding that Solomon sought, that Paul is praying for the Colossians here, was I need to know what God says, what his word says, what is his unchangeable truth, and how do I relate and apply that to life today, where every day looks different. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I don't face the same problems. I don't face the same people. I don't face the same challenges. And so I need to know how to take what doesn't change and apply it to what is constantly changing. That is wisdom. That's biblical understanding, and it propels us to live righteously. So do you desire to be wise? I mean, I think all of us were like, yeah, I, I want to be wise. The alternative is, you know, yeah, I want to be stupid. I want to have no clue. Nobody, nobody desires that. Some of us end up there from time to time. But if I want to be wise, if you want to be wise, here's something to remember. How you practice and apply the things that you already know demonstrates your wisdom and understanding just as much as learning something new, and maybe even more so. We tend to think, if I need to be wise, I need to figure out new things. I need to learn new truths. What the Bible says is, if you want to be wise, you need to show, you need to demonstrate, you need to apply the truths you already know. That's a big part of wisdom. That's a big part of what Paul is praying for these people. And he prays that the Colossians will be fully pleasing to God. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, we use this language a lot, right? I don't think we think about it most of the time. Yeah, I want to be pleasing to God. God, make me pleasing to you. Walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Do you ever stop and consider the significance of that little phrase? Because this is a driver right here. This is something that should motivate us to want to live lives worthy of the Lord. I want to be pleasing to him. Let's approach it this way. What pleases you? What are some things that happened this past week that were pleasing to you? Maybe it was you know, a particularly good meal that you ate. Maybe it was a fun time that you had with a friend. Maybe it was something that somebody did for you, surprised you with a gift or uh, a nice day at work. What, what is it that, that pleases you? The Bible tells us that when we walk in obedience to God's commands, our righteousness is pleasing to God. And on the flip side, our sin grieves God. We grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not, we're not earning with our righteousness God's favor. Our favor is secured through Christ on the cross, but the Bible uses this language of walking in a way that pleases the Lord. We should want to please our Lord and Savior in the way that we live. And just as you gain pleasure from those things that please you, our righteousness brings pleasure and joy to God. Do you ever stop and think about that? That the Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, who lacks nothing, who needs nothing, is pleased when you walk in obedience to his word. And as Christians who love him and are thankful for what God has done for us, we want to please him rather than grieving him. And so think about that as you walk through your week this week. May that be a motivation to you to want to please the Lord, to want to walk in a manner worthy of him, pleasing him. Do we think about how our living affects God? Or do we just think of it in terms of our little box, our little bubble, what it means for us? Fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul prays that they will know God's will by having wisdom, by living righteously, and then finally by being fruitful. He prays that in knowing God's will and in walking in accordance with it, they will bear fruit, increasing in both their good works 
and their knowledge. That's right. He uses this language of bearing fruit. You see this pop up a lot in the Bible. This is written in a world that was very agricultural. And so the people who read this would have had a really good and instant understanding of what's being communicated by we need to be bearing fruit because they had trees or they had plants that bore fruit. That's where they got their livelihood from. If you've got a garden in your backyard and you plant five tomato plants and four of them bear fruit and one doesn't, you're not going to say, well, some do, some don't. You're going to say, what's wrong with this one? It's supposed to bear fruit. Like that's what, that's what healthy tomato plants do. They bear fruit. And so if they don't, then something is not right. Paul is praying that we as Christians will bear fruit. A healthy plant bears fruit. A healthy Christian bears fruit. When we know God, when we display that through our actions, so when we have wisdom, when we live righteously, this causes us to know God more and to grow in godliness. The more we have wisdom, the more we live righteously, the more we want to, to come to God's word, to acquire more wisdom, to continue to live righteously, this becomes a self-fueling cycle. It's like rolling the snowball downhill. Once you get it started, it starts to feed itself. God has created us this way so that when we seek out his word, and when we walk according to his ways, we continue in those things. Right? He gave us the analogy in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. When we remain, abide, make our home in Christ, we bear much fruit. Which causes us to want to continue to abide in Christ. Which causes us to bear more fruit. What kind of fruit should we bear as Christians? What is Paul getting at here when we talk about bearing fruit? We're not popping off tomatoes or peppers, but the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So he begins by praying that they will be filled with all knowledge and he ends by praying that they would be increasing in the knowledge of God. Be filled with all knowledge, wisdom, spiritual understanding, live righteously, bearing fruit, which causes you to increase in knowledge. It's a cycle. It's, it's something that we start and continue in our entire lives. But this is what Paul is praying for them. Does this cycle, number one, does this cycle of godly growth characterize your life? Like when you see this picture in these verses, in not verses 9 and 10, is this an accurate picture of you? Maybe not in perfect reflection, but does this characterize the general flow of your life? Are you about these things? Are you having wisdom, living righteously, being fruitful as a Christian? And then two, are you praying this for others? So here's gut punch number one. When I, when I got Sunday night just into starting to outline this text and look through it and you hit just these few verses, I just sit back and ask myself, when was the last time I prayed this for anybody? For my wife? For my kids? For my family? For my friends? When was the last time that I went before the Lord and said, God, may you give them knowledge of your will? May you give them spiritual wisdom and understanding that they might walk in a manner pleasing to you. I didn't have a good answer to that question. But 
This is the way that Paul prays for people he's never met. That should say something to us about the importance of this, about how big a deal it is that we are praying for for people in this way. There is no more important prayer that you can pray for someone else than that they would know God more. Paul models it here. He models it on and on throughout the New Testament. This is the biggest deal that there is in your prayer life. Are you praying this for yourself? Are you praying this for others? That we would be filled with knowledge of his will. That's just number one. So we've got a lot farther to go here. Where do we go from there? After we pray that people would know God's will, well, the next thing that Paul prays for is that they will experience God's power. Look at verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul prays that the Colossians will be strengthened with all power. Why? Because the Christian life is not something we're capable of living on our own. Think back to 9 and 10, having wisdom, living righteously, being fruitful. These things aren't easy. I come up against this and I think, God, I can't can't do that. And just about the time that I think, yeah, I'm actually doing all right at this, then I fall completely off the wagon. The Christian life is something that is not, I, I can't live it in my own power. I can't do these things. I can't keep up that kind of life and that kind of prayer life that we just looked at. And then you toss in, Trials, suffering, the things that life is made of, and persevering through each day can seem like an impossible order. And Paul understands that. And so he prays that they will be strengthened according to God's glorious might. I'm praying that you'll be filled with knowledge of God's will, walking in a manner that's pleasing to him, bearing fruit. And I know you can't do it on your own because I can't either. So God, may you fill them with your power. May you strengthen them according to your glorious might. This is a, this is a truth that I think we know. We, we know it here that I need God's power. You need God's power if we're going to be obedient. But, but sometimes it just it doesn't make it down All the way. Sometimes we're tempted to believe that the gospel of God's free grace is what saves us and it's what gets us in the door to his family. But from there, it's up to me to work really hard and be really good and grow on my own. That's a lie that I can buy into from day to day. But nothing could be further from the truth. God's free grace isn't just what saves us, it's what grows us. We are called to grow in godliness. I mean, you look at passages like this, you look throughout the New Testament letters, and it's grow in godliness, walk in a manner worthy, knowing how to live in this dark world. This is what you are to be doing. But it's always, always, always directly tied to the reality that God will supply us with the power, that he will give us the strength to do what he's calling us to do through Christ. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, it's probably the clearest place in all the New Testament that this comes out, where Paul tells the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, we got work to do, right? I got to work out my salvation 
with fear and trembling because it's kind of a big deal and I'm not adequate for it. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. How can I work out my salvation with fear and trembling without absolutely losing my mind and becoming a basket case from desperation and despair? Because God works in me. Because Christ gives me strength. Because he allows me, fills me with his power to do the things that he calls me to do. That's the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. Is It calls us to an impossible task. But it gives us everything we need for every step along the way. And so, so often, we decide, I want to shoot for a lower goal of just being a generally good person this week, and I'm going to try to do it all myself. I'm going to try to just, to just grit my teeth and, and, and charge ahead, and I'm, I'm going to be good today. I'm going to do, do all right. And we neglect the strength that God provides, because we neglect all those things that we talked about earlier, about wanting to know his will more, reading his word, or encountering what he says, applying it to life. One of my favorite poems is from John Newton, who's most famous for composing Amazing Grace. And he wrote this. He wrote, Run, John, run, the law demands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly, but it gives me wings. When we grasp this, when we grasp the wonder of the strength that is available to us in Jesus Christ, it gives us endurance and patience in the midst of whatever life brings our way. He pray, we, we need to pray that people would, be, would experience God's power. The first piece of that is giving us perseverance, perseverance through trials. Verse 11 being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. Now, endurance and patience don't come naturally, right? In our own strength, what happens when we face trial? What happens when we face suffering? Well, for me, and I'm, I'm thinking maybe some of you are in the same boat, for me, I tend to sink into selfishness. I tend to sink into self-pity. I tend to sink into resentment maybe towards the source of my problem, or maybe to the people who just happen to be around me and become a convenient object for that resentment. That's what naturally happens to me when I face trials, when I face suffering. Endurance and patience, are, they don't just naturally pop up. And frankly, I've never met anybody who, who, they, who would really say that they do. Right? You, know, you ever ask somebody, man, how was your week? It's a tough week. There was just a lot of stuff going on. I had to deal with a lot of junk, and it was just really frustrating. But, you know, I just found myself patient all the time. It just kind of happened out of nowhere. Nobody talks like that because it's not natural. It's not natural to have endurance and patience. Endurance and patience are produced by the Spirit of God at work in our lives. Work which, by the way, happens through the process of knowing and doing God's will that we talked about earlier, right? We understand who he is, we have wisdom, we apply that wisdom to life, it bears fruit in us and causes us to seek more wisdom from God. And that process, that cycle, makes me have endurance and patience through life. It gives me the ability to make it through difficult days, difficult weeks, difficult months, difficult years, if that's what happens. 
I think we grasp this idea. We know that there's power available, that Christ gives us strength. It's easy to say that, but a lot of times we disconnect that from all the other things that we know we need to be about, from getting into God's word, from praying, from seeking his wisdom and living righteously. We, we tend to think that, that wisdom gives us all the head knowledge and it gives us the ability to read God's word and do what we ought to do, but that when it comes to power, we're waiting on something mystical almost, like a Star Wars level force where I just need to, to close everything out and cleanse my mind so that I have peace and strength and power. No, the strength and power comes from the wisdom. It comes from the living righteously. It comes from the spirit working within us and bearing fruit. One begets the other. That's why Paul prays first for knowledge of his will and then for a filling, for a strengthening of his power. But note that he's not just praying for their patience and endurance in terms of them gritting their teeth and army crawling through. Like, when I think of endurance, I think of, like, the last, the last minute of a workout. When I'm working out at home and I'm really tired and I just want to quit and, and take, take a drink of water, but you just you know, grit your teeth and say, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it through this last 60 seconds and I'm going to get there and then I'm going to go into the backyard and throw up in the yard and hope none of the neighbors are outside watching. At least that's what the last 60 seconds of my workouts look like. If, if you're better than that, then keep it to yourself. Um, that's what endurance looks like. That's the kind of endurance that I can well up in me to just to, to get through, to grit my teeth and do it. And here we see that Paul's praying that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. All right, so if endurance and patience don't come naturally then joy in the midst of trials certainly doesn't come naturally. Like, it's hard to, to find patience and endurance in my own strength. It's, it's impossible to go through trials and find joy in my own strength. That does not happen. But Paul prays it for them. He prays that they would be filled with joy. And it's important to note that he's not praying something for them that he hasn't experienced for himself. Paul's not an armchair quarterback who is just sitting on the sidelines like, hey, do better, try harder, be happy, it's going to be great. You read Paul's letters, read Colossians, read Romans, read Philippians, and I think it's safe to say that you'll see a pretty joyful attitude coming through Paul. He, he just exudes joy in his prayers and his thanksgivings and his instructions. Paul is a guy who is filled with joy. Now then stop and remember, where did he write most of these letters from? Prison. Paul knew about suffering. He knew about trials. He knew about temptations. And so when he tells them, I pray that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, with all endurance and patience, with joy, he's not dealing in the abstract. This is not theory. Paul says, I have experienced this. I have experienced God reaching his hand down in the depths of my suffering and giving me endurance with joy. It is possible. The Spirit has done it for me, and if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. And so, God, would you fill them with your power? Would you give them endurance with joy? He's praying that God will give them a joy that surpasses everything and anything this world can offer, and it overrides any circumstances that they might be facing. So where do you get that? How can I experience God's power in that way? Persevering through trials, having joy through suffering. What kind of joy is invincible in the face of this world's trials and temptations and despairs? Where does it come from? Well, that's where we get the final piece of Paul's prayer in verse 12. 
that people will be filled with thankfulness. Be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He prays that they would give thanks to the Father. You're thinking, this this sounds familiar. We just talked about Thanksgiving last week in verses 3 through 8. You're not wrong. Paul is essentially praying for them that the same thanksgiving that characterized him in verses 3 through 8 would characterize them, that they would have that same experience of thanksgiving directed toward God. So why should we be thankful? I mean, some days it's easy. You walk outside on a morning like this, and it's very easy to feel thankful for, like, the beautiful day that God has given. Like, we're going to have a cookout. We're going to eat good food. It's easy to be thankful when I'm eating good food that God has given. But why should I be thankful on bad days? Because earlier this week, on Wednesday, I was not feeling very thankful when I, I wasn't feeling 100%. My stomach was a little off. I was troubleshooting my air conditioner, which was not working. And I was dealing with DirecTV customer service for about the 10,000th time. That, that didn't have me in a thankful mood. To the point where I came home from work that day and I knew I had to sit down and write this sermon that night and I felt like, I, how am I going to sit down and talk about this stuff without being a big, flaming hypocrite? Because I didn't feel thankful. I didn't have this grasp of, of thanksgiving. So what kind of thanksgiving is so strong that it can propel us to joy on those kind of days and far, far, far worse ones? Right? What kind of thanksgiving does this? It's a thanksgiving for the inheritance that we are promised. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Think about this. Right? This is one of those verses that if you're familiar with the Bible, if you've read Paul's writings, it just sounds like Paulese. Right? This is the kind of stuff that he says. Have you ever stop and think about the magnitude of what is being communicated here? I, with my grumpy, selfish, ungrateful attitudes in the midst of those trivial first world problem kind of matters that I talked about just a few minutes ago, I have been qualified to share in the eternal inheritance of God's people. I am a joint heir with Jesus Christ, a promised recipient of everything good the creator of the universe has to offer. Me. How on earth can that be true? I don't deserve it. How can God say, you, DJ, guy who's being really, really whiny about his satellite TV bill not being what it's supposed to be, you are going to be an inheritant, an, an heir of everything good that I have. You're going to be an inheritance, you're going to be an inherent, an heir of the kingdom of light, of all of my gifts and my blessings. Me? The Bible also talks about the holiness that is required to see God. I I don't have that. It talks about God's high standard for living, all these commands that I can't follow, and yet he has chosen me to share in this kind of inheritance. Doesn't he know me? Yeah, he does, better than I know myself. Doesn't he know what I've done? Knows that too. 
Doesn't he know the things that I've thought, the things that I would be horrified if any other person in this room knew have coursed through my brain? Yeah, he knows that stuff too. Before it's even on our mind, before it's even on our lips. He does. He knows that about me. He knows that about you. He knows your past. He knows your baggage. He knows your your hatred. He knows your lust. He knows everything there is to know about you. And he qualified you anyway in Jesus Christ. What, What kind of love is that? That shatters anything that this world has. Like, we, we don't have a category for that kind of love, for that kind of grace. You see, the world tells you the way to joy is don't get down on yourself, right? You're, you're a good person. Don't, don't think about, you know, about all the negative. Think about the positive stuff in you. You know, you're, you're good enough. You're smart enough. Doggone it. People like you. So just be positive and happy and put on a big shiny smile, and, and that's going to bring you joy. Listen, when you do that, when you deny the depths of your own sinfulness, it, it feels like it's helpful on the one hand, right? I don't want to think about how crappy a person I am. But when you deny the depths of your own sinfulness, you actually deny yourself the greatest wonder, amazement, and God-glorifying awe in the world. Because if I minimize my own sinfulness, then what on earth do I need Jesus for? If I feel like, you know, I'm a pretty good person, I know I'm not, you know, all fall short of the glory of God, so obviously I'm not perfect, but let's say on a, 90, a 0 to 100 scale, I feel like I'm at kind of a, a 93, or maybe on my, my not-so-good days, I'm at like solid C territory, like low 80s, and I just need God to make up those last few, few little bits, get me over the top, then, then Jesus isn't isn't amazing. He's not awe-inspiring. The, the grace that I've received, it's, it's just a helping hand, right? Because I did most of the work, let's be honest. But if I realize, if I stare uncomfortably in the mirror and realize who I am, realize how far short of the glory of God that I fall, and God chooses to give me an inheritance with the saints in light anyway, now suddenly I have a Savior who is beyond comprehension and who is big enough to push me to endurance and patience with joy in the face of whatever hits me this week. And how could he do that? How could he give me that inheritance? Because of the wonder of the gospel. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. He took all my mess. He took all my evil. He took all my shame. He took all my selfishness and he put it to death in the person of Jesus Christ. And he delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's where I live. That's my home. That's my people. That's where I feel good and comfortable. And he transferred me. He removed me and he placed me somewhere else. He transferred me to the kingdom of his beloved son. And in him, I have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. My mess, my evil, my shame, my selfishness, they no longer define me. My past cannot hold me. My worst fears are stripped of their power because Christ has delivered me, because he has transferred me. He has given me an inheritance because of the forgiveness, the redemption that I have in him. Have you grasped this? We talk gospel so much in the church. 
and with, with, with rightful reason. But one of the dangers of talking about something so much is you almost become numb to it after a while. Never let yourself be numb to this reality. This is the greatest weapon, the greatest motivator, the greatest engine that you have in your spiritual walk is understanding. He delivered me from darkness and placed me into a kingdom where I have redemption and forgiveness of sins. What do you say to that? How do you explain it? How do you make sense of a God who would do that for me, for you, for us? And what can this life throw at you that can stand against that, that can compare to that? What weapon can bring down that fortress? He has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom I have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's why Paul prays that they will give thanks to the Father, because he knows that's the best weapon they have to fight for joy, to fight for wisdom and understanding, to fight for righteous living, to fight for being fruitful. If they're going to get any of that, it happens through thanksgiving. That's why thanksgiving drove him to pray for them. Thanksgiving, understanding that it's all of God, it's not of me, it empties me of self and it wants to to pray that God's work would continue, that it would abound in me, in you, in people that we've never even met that across the world, across this country are meeting this morning to talk about these same things. Thankfulness is the engine that drives this whole train and it is the impenetrable fortress that guards my joy on first world problems, on real actual problems, on good days, on bad days. I need to be filled with thankfulness. I need to grasp the wonder of the gospel so that I can live as I should. So, are these the kind of things you desire for others? Do you see these things as the most important things that you can pray for other people? And here's what was the real gut punch for me this week. If not, it is likely because you do not see them as the most important things for yourself. If we're going to be honest. That's a hard truth. And that's one I've had to grapple with this week. Because I don't don't pray like this. This does not flow out of me on a regular basis. But as I look at at the scripture, as I look at what Paul has to say, I need this. I need it Monday morning, 6 a.m., the second that alarm goes off, and every second of the day that follows. You need it too. And I need to be moved to pray it for you to desire it for you, because if I love you, we use that language, you know, we love each other, as Christians, we are to be bonded together in the love of Christ, and we, we talk about love. If I love you, then I want this for you. There is nothing that will be better for you, that will be, make you more joyful, more happy in the long run than these things, so I need to pray these things for you. Are you praying this for your family? Are you praying this for your friends? Are you praying this for Trinity Church? You won't until you believe that they're the most important things in the world for you. So, so how do we get there? How do I come to grips? How do I make this more important to me? Well, you need to be filled with the knowledge of his will. 
You need to be strengthened with his power. And you need to be giving thanks to him. Like it's, that's what is just, it's so humbling. And if I'm going to be honest, it's a little bit frustrating from time to time, right? Like this isn't rocket science. We sit here and I, I know I fall short of this. I know I'm not, I'm not valuing these things as much as I should. So like, where's the magic pill? What's going to make me better instantly? That's the kind of, of remedy that I want. And what, what the scripture tells me is the magic pill is pursue knowledge of God's will, live righteously, bear fruit, be strengthened according to his power, and give thanks to the Father. When we do those things, this is what comes out of it. And so a deficiency in my thanksgiving and a deficiency in my grasp of the importance of these things is probably a deficiency of my, my spiritual disciplines and my practice. I need to pour myself into that, not in my own strength, but knowing that God will provide. We need to be filled with knowledge of his will. We need to be strengthened with his power. We need to give thanks to the Father. Or maybe the reason that you don't value these things like you should is because you've never been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. God holds out the offer of his free grace. Repent of your sin. Believe in Christ. And these promises are true for you. our, Our world knows that something is desperately off about human existence. And our gut says, suppress it, hide it, don't deal with it, just do what you gotta do to get through life, don't think about these things. The scripture says you can't escape it. You can try all you want to escape it in this life, and even if you're 99% successful, you're going to die and you're going to face God. And you need grace. You need redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And it's available from Jesus Christ, full and free, today. And so in just a minute, we're going to transition into a time of communion. We're going to reflect on the wonder of the gospel. And if you're sitting here this morning, you think, I'm... I don't know Jesus. I haven't, I haven't grasped this. And I would tell you, hold off on communion. But make this a day where you repent, where you believe, not just as David said earlier as we were going through the creed, not just yet, Jesus exists, and I have a mental category for that, but I am putting my trust in him to save me, to give me the forgiveness of sins that I need. And for the rest of us, if you are following Christ, but you feel about two inches tall like I have this week wrestling with this text. And let's cry out to God together to give us the knowledge of his will, to strengthen us with his power, to give thanks to the Father. And guess what? This is God's will for us. And so if we pray that prayer, we know with 100% certainty that he will be pleased to answer it because he's already said he desires it for us. He's already said that's where we need to go. And so let's run to him. The book of James says, do any of you lack wisdom? Then ask God who gives freely to all who ask. It's it's not difficult. It's not simple, or it's not easy, but it is simple. This is the path forward for all of us to humble ourselves before the Lord and know that he will lift us up. So Seth's going to go ahead and come up and prepare to lead us as we reflect on God through communion as we remember the wonder of the gospel. If you are a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to to partake in communion with us. In just a moment, get up, walk to the back as Seth plays, uh, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine, and rejoice that he has transferred you from darkness into light, that he has given you redemption and the forgiveness of sins.
But before that, he's going he's to play quietly, and we all, we need some time and some space to reflect, to reflect on this massive picture of thankful prayer that we see.